Hey everyone, I'm Chris, and welcome back to season three of the Superpowers Podcast Show. Have you ever asked yourself, what is your superpower? Everyone has a superpower, but most people just don't know what it is. And that's why we're here to uncover it. This podcast will not only share what our guests' unique superpowers are, but also how it helped them both professionally and personally. Superpowers, what's yours? Welcome back, everybody. Season three, episode three of the Superpowers podcast show. Here with a friend of mine, Andy Dunn, who unfortunately I haven't seen for uh, many years, even though we used to have a frequent breakfast in the West Village and we'd see each other at sort of random tech conferences and that sort of thing. He's on the show today. Andy has had a really uh, fun and remarkable career, both being a co-founder and CEO of Bonobos, which obviously many people have heard of that brand. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that. Dabbling into uh, venture with his own venture practice, which he's had for a while, a, a company that he co-founded with his sister. I noticed that he may have something up his sleeve next, which is called whipped cream. At least that's what it's called on LinkedIn. So we'll see what he can tell us. But anyway, let me stop talking and 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 say hi to you, Andy. So a couple things. Where are you uh, dialing in from, and um, how are you doing? <laughs> Chris, it's so awesome to be here. Dialing in from Chicago. So after 16 years away, uh, prodigal son returns to his hometown, and it's both uh, sad to leave New York behind and the the tech community and everything we built there and so many good things happened there in my life. And probably most importantly was meeting my wife, Manuela. And uh, we just had a little guy and made the decision as a family to move with the baby back home for me and really as sort of home for, for her. She's from Brazil originally, but went to high school up in Evanston. Uh, funnily enough, when I was in college there at the same time, we didn't know each other, but I think we went to the same Counting Crows concert. And we oh. had the same favorite, same favorite falafel and hummus restaurant. Yeah, this was the <laughs> longest from the Counting Crows before, before it all went south. So, is she the um, only? Is she currently the only Brazilian in Chicago? As far as that can endure the weather, and she obviously she knows what it what happens winter time, right? Yeah, totally. Well, it's funny. She's starting a company on her side right now, and she actually felt like Chicago was the right place to build it. It's a a, a sustainability company in the water space. But we were talking about the winners and I was like, look, I'll make you a deal. If you're willing, <laughs> if you're willing to plant the flag in Chicago, I'm willing to spend, you know, a big chunk of our winter Rio, which is her, her native town in Brazil. So I don't know realistically wait, how much. Spend, wait, but- Andy, I'm sorry. That's like you winning on all sides. That That is not a deal. That is just you winning. Yeah, that I mean, look, I think that's the lesson on on you know being being married for a period of time here is it's all about win wins and and feigning sacrifice to pretend like you're giving something up when you're when you're really not. That's a real recipe for. Let, let, a let's make sure shift. let's make sure she doesn't listen to this and our other millions of uh, listeners and doesn't get that soundbite. I do have a question for you in regards to Chicago. I will tell you and for for our listeners and getting to know Andy over the years and I have boys that are 10 and 8, married in 2006. I always remember talking to you Andy various times in regards to the we always had very good conversations on the personal side of things. We getting married, having kids. You were always highly curious to what's it like being a dad on like a bus at the lobby conference and you know our breakfast and in 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 the west village or wherever we were eating so now that you're 
a dad just very quickly? Is it everything that you sort of kind of uh, could imagine? Or was it what I sort of equated to is you, you step out of this, this one world, which is like, oh yeah, I know what it's like. It's going to be like, and then you kind of go into this other vortex and you're like, oh, oh my God, you know, like what's been your experience? So many things to say. First of all, it's been everything I'd heard and better. It's better than I thought. And in a way, I know life doesn't work this way and maybe it's not a productive comment, but I, I feel stupid for waiting so long and that's not how life works. But, you know, first, first baby here at, gosh, I would guess I was 41 and I've got some friends who are, you know, now certainly two or three or four, my best friend's five has five kids and I'm like, oh man, I'm, I'm late to the party. So it's been magical in that regard. I would say one of the other realizations is there's different ways to do it. And I like one of my co-founders, my new endeavor, I think had four kids by the time he was 28 or something like that. And so I think there really is something to be said for you have your kids when you have them. And if that means you have them early and you build a life with them, right. And, and around it, rather than trying to fit kids into your life later, that's like one way to do it. For, for me, having kids after having had an exit as a startup, having you know, the means to build in some, some balance and ability to continue to be an entrepreneur and do entrepreneurial things, and both on behalf of me and my wife, you know, what I'm getting at is just like being able to afford incredible childcare yeah. is, a, is a massive privilege. Yes. Right? And so I'm not, I'm not saying there's a right way to do it. But this hasn't been as hard as people said it would be, partly because we can afford great care all around. And frankly, because we're making the strategic decision to be co-located with family. Like I, I'm of the belief that we lived for 200,000 years as a species, or at least 70,000, where everyone grew up in close proximity to a broader tribe of next of kin. And so at the moment that we have this conversation, I'm literally in the same building as my parents who are upstairs and down the hall. And as my sister, brother-in-law and niece who are down the actual hall. And so we've got eight people in the building <laughs> that love our son, you know, and who are all with him every single day. And all that's also a privilege, right? To be able to have done that, to figure it out. The fact that my sister and mom had already figured that out. And so we're, we're just very, very lucky all around and to have a, a healthy baby boy. It's such a gift. We're, we're super grateful. I'm happy to hear that and ho hope to hear about more babies from your family. Um, one of these days, I'd like to come to the Sunday dinner there and see what that's like. I'm sure it's a lot of fun. Before I kick in, I got to ask you, but you can't spend too much time on it. How are the Bears going to do this year with Justin Fields? You know, we just got to talk about the Bears for a minute. Well, first of all, I had a, like a renaissance in love. <laughs> it's not the wrong term for NFL football. I got a chance to go with my boss from Walmart, Mark Laurie entrepreneur, founder of jet.com, diapers.com. We did a charity event that he runs with Rich Eisen from, I think, NFL Network, who does the NFL draft, among other things. Great. He's we great. got a chance to do, yeah, eight entrepreneurs and eight NFL stars, five of whom were Hall of Famers, running the 40-yard dash against <laughs> each other. <laughs> That's and cool. I was paired, so it was teams. It was like one entrepreneur and one NFL great. And I ended up getting paired with Michael Vick. Oh, come um, on. Which was so cool. And who's just an exceptional person. Obviously, he's had a wild life story. Yeah. Do the two-part documentary just came out on him. 
and we had a great bond and he ran a four seven, which is pretty freaking fast for a guy who was having a bunch of cocktails the previous night. <laughs> and I had never run a 40 before in my life and was like last second trying to figure out how to train and not get hurt. All I had to do was run a five, two and we would have won. And Mark thought that I could beat a six, maybe. And I did a five, five, which was, which was better than expectations but we still lost because of that to Mark Laurie mm-hmm. and Ray Lewis. Oh, uh, so that's so cool. Second, but right off the pace. The was there any concerns about pulling the hammy or, you know, oh, yeah. like I was terrified. Yeah. I was up at night watching YouTube videos of, yeah. you know, people trying to explain how to do this and come off the block. So just being with these guys, you know, throwing, throwing, playing catch with Jerry Rice, who was there and, you know, Michael Vick shaking his head when I threw him a bad pass. It just got me super fired up about the NFL season. And I have to say, I just went through the depth chart on the Bears, and I think we're going to be good this year. I think Justin comes in like game nine or 10. Yep. Andy Dalton, the red rifle passes the baton, and I think yep. I'm going to the playoffs. You're going to, you're, you, well, it, it all starts with defense. And, you know, I'm from Boston. So I, I like all, there's like five or six cities and the Buffaloes of the world, and even competitive cities like Pittsburgh, Philly. I like the old school, hard nose, you know, towns that have had, you know, a legacy of diehard fans, not these franchises that have popped up for, you know, five, six years. I mean, God bless. And, but yeah, hopefully they'll meet up to your Cubs, which I know is your, seems to be your passion. So Andy, you know, tell us a little bit about the Bonobo story, but I really am excited to understand, you know, what, what it took for you to get, you know, kind of build and to exit and then your time with Walmart. What lessons did you learn from that? If you were the younger Andy now, you know, man, these are things that I would do differently. So I know there was a lot to unpack there, but let's have at it. It's fun maybe to start with the more hidden part of the story that I haven't talked about as much. I, you know, Guy Roz at How I Built This does a pretty good job of excavating kind of the the basic building blocks of the story, you know, to be redundant of how you build something. And I got to go and do that. And so I feel like I'm on the record with how the company emerged. I think what your question and what you're getting at with this show is like, how did the human emerge? And who is who is the human behind the entrepreneur? And in what ways did that human become an entrepreneur. I, I'm not sure that's exactly right, but that's, that's right. You, ba- you basically summarized my show better, better than me. So you, thank you. I'll listen to this later, but that's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> and, and, and your superpowers behind Andy that led you to where you are today. That, that's, that's what we want to talk about. Well, and I joked to you that I thought we would talk about kryptonite. And I, I think there's something <laughs> to be said about like the, the relationship between the kryptonite and the superpower. And it's top of mind for me because, Chris, I've been dealing with a really challenging mental illness for the last 21 years. I want to actually be very articulate about exactly what I've been dealing with. And the way that I'm doing that is a little bit non-traditional, which is I'm writing a book uh, with Penguin Random House. It's almost done. It's going to come out for mental health month next year. So I'm bearing the lead here a little because it's such a crazy set of stories that it deserves the right, the right reveal. But the headline is, you know, the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur are inherently sine curve like in nature. And to get a little bit math nerdy, the, the amplitude on that sine curve can be multiplied by underlying biochemistry. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, what, what was... In at this point, most memorable 
about the Bonobo's journey was how much it was informed by the relationship with this underlying mood disorder. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, luckily we've gotten to a place where anxiety and even in our little corner of the world where, you know, growth-based venture, venture capital-backed companies, there's been an explosion in um, startups related to mental health have had a chance to back a bunch of those as well. And so I think that's good that we talk about depression. And I think there's also a lot more going on, you know, with with mental health and, and entrepreneurs. There's more taboo spaces that have not yet been opened up. And and so my goal is to talk about that. And, and I do think that not all this stuff is bad, right? There is a greatest weakness element and there is a greatest strength element that comes from these these underlying battles that we face. It's really interesting, Andy, the, the sort of the other topics that are somewhat still under the table, but I've had progression is, you know, everything from, for, you know, fertility. My wife and I went through IVF. A lot of people don't know that. Very painful experience, very expensive process. And today it feels like, you know, at a dinner dinner party, you could be, if you're talking to a young couple, you may be talking to 30% or 40% of, you know, couples in the room that are probably going through it, but they keep their head down. They don't talk about it. Right. And then if you think about homosexuality and and what that was 20 years ago versus thank God where it is today and, you know, less of a stigma and people be able to kind of live their life. I just bring up those two topics because while I'm not as close or as aware or has have studied kind of, you know, mental illness and depression, like you said, the headlines more and more and people talking about it more and more are more present. And I think that's really great. So I kind of use these other sort of examples as I definitely, it seems like there's somewhat of a tipping point where people like you, books that come out, platforms that exist that allow you know, more people to sort of talk about it and not be ashamed of it is going to be, you know, very, very promising and very positive for people that are struggling. Totally. I I got a friend who I was telling about the book and he was like, well, wait, what is it about? And I was like, oh, it's, it's about the intersection of entrepreneurship and mental illness. And he just immediately goes, wait, isn't that kind of the same thing? (laughs) I I thought that was, I thought it was great. And if you look at the data, you know, different kinds of mental illnesses, whatever other term you might want to give to it, you know, for, for more moderate versions, mental health challenges, index between seven and 20 to one in entrepreneurs, right? And so if you take narcissism, if you take depression, if you take anxiety, if you take bipolarity, if you take, you know, any of these things, it over indexes in people who create stuff. And in some ways it undergirds the genius and in other ways it seeks to destroy it at the same time. And I think living with that paradox in some way, shape or form is, is the journey of anyone who's trying to do something superlative and exceptional. And I think therefore we need to confront that and be able to talk about it without shame. And you bring up this concept of coming out of the closet, right? Thank God we're there, right? I can, I can remember Literally, we were in New York when New York passed Freedom of Marriage Act. I was at Marie's Crisis, which is a mostly gay show tunes piano bar in Greenwich Village. And I've never been around that kind of joy before in my life. It wasn't a joy of a wedding or other joyous events. It was 
people who've just mm-hmm. become free. It's something radically different. And I don't know that we'll have quite that same kind of a moment with mental health, but we need to get to a place where the stigma evaporates so yeah. that you can talk about it just the way you would talk about if you're having knee surgery or if you've, you're dealing with diabetes. Yeah. And um, people aren't going to go off and whisper and talk to the side or this person has this. Yeah, it's exactly. It needs to be something we can openly talk about. Exactly. Yeah. If yeah. there were no shame, we could, right? Shame is what you can't speak about. And, and Andy, shame, separate. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, sorry. What was the driver of, and it's wonderful that this book's coming out. Was it sort of a byproduct of your journey and being a founder of Bonobos and just how challenging that was, or maybe the other side of it? Was was it that period where you're like, wow, I'm I'm really, I'm going through that. Like, was was being an entrepreneur the, the catalyst? Yeah, so here's what I would say about it. There is a interplay and not just in mental health, in so many ways in our lives between the exogenous factors, the external reality that we're living and our underlying DNA, right? It's what, it, what I don't know, genotype and phenotype, right? Something like that. And in some regards, what, what we become in terms of any mental health pathologies that evolve, is, is it going to be an interplay between those things? But in, in my case, there was a very clear diagnosis that I was given when I was 20 that I chose as an individual, and I think we chose as a family to blame on substance abuse. And as you might imagine, like happens in, phys- in physical health with mental health, it's even harder. There's what's called a differential diagnosis, which is to say, we're not sure this is right. This is what it could be. Let's watch. And... Therefore, there was this dormant issue that was stigmatized, which we didn't talk about. And when I started dealing with some real acute depression during the Bonobos years, like the onset was as shit was going down with my co-founder, as I was facing the typical, you know, looks great on the outside. Are we running out of money on the inside? Um, I'm good at hiring. Oh, wait, I'm bad at hiring. All these, all these like things around, you know, strategies not working, executive churn, can't raise money. I dealt with like massive bouts of depression. And I can remember telling a doctor who was a family doctor, this is what I'm dealing with. I slept all weekend and I don't really feel like living. And he was like, you, you do, you just have a really hard job, <laughs> right? In moments like that, where you're making a bid for help. Yeah. And you know, it's someone who who's trying to say something helpful, but what we didn't do was like tackle it the way we would have tackled a physical issue. Right. It's like, no, you're going to a doctor, you're yes. figuring out medication. Yes. And I tried some of that. And then I think what makes the book fun, and I wish I could say more, I'll be able to say so much more about it soon is in 2016, it became really clear that that original diagnosis was correct. Mm-hmm. And this was just a year before we sold the company and it was a lot. It, it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great story, if anything. And, you know, when you, when you loop back to your question around what was a part of the overall Bonobo's journey, I think the thing that comes from this kryptonite that I've had of this, of this issue is a aspiration to be radically honest with myself, because on some level I've known, you don't forget a diagnosis that you're given. It's meaningful. Mm-hmm. You try to push it down. 
And I do think there has been at least one good thing that has come of that for me, which is an ability to at least try to be radically honest with myself. And a great example that you bring up is like, hey, the sale to Walmart. I was honest with myself. Bonobos was not likely to become the independent public company that I always dreamed it would be. I remember thinking, wait a second, there's a way to build a backbone of software for the whole like direct consumer brand revolution. And we literally tried to do that inside our company. We opened an office in Palo Alto. We got our VCs behind it. Turns out that that is being done well by a company called Shopify, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So yeah. sometimes you want your company to become you know, something massive. And the right answer is, let's just build a great premium menswear retailer, right? right. And, and I face that tension between grandiosity and realism at Bonobos all the time. And I think the sale was based on our pragmatic understanding of this is a great digital brand that should continue to, to scale and having that belong to a safe trend in a safe under wanting one of the few retailers that's winning, that was a decision based on radical honesty. And I think at my best, I've been able to, you know, navigate that collision between fantasy and a reality and reality in a way that's pragmatic. And I think a lot of that does stem back to the struggle that I've had. Andy, that is like just a so so much wealth of value, what you just said. And having, you know, been at the time when I was running App Savvy, same experience ambitions here, reality here, so many mistakes made sort of reaching for something that it wasn't and whatever those hurdles were, you know, any words of wisdom for, for, you know, current founders or entrepreneurs, are there signals to understand when and where your, you know, your kind of realization or your dream is actually here? And by the way, if you ask any founder, you know, a several hundred million dollar exit to, to one of the largest you know, brands and sort of, you know, overall market value is a massive success. But how do you know when to sort of, when, you know, to sort of come to grips with, hey, this is who we are and this is probably our best outcome and let's not keep sort of spinning or, or pushing for something that may not materialize? Like how, how does one know that? <laughs> In my case, it was because we just hit, we're just, we're hitting 10 years. <laughs> I was getting, <laughs> I was getting older. I remember sitting down with Mark Lurie and then Doug McMillan, who's the CEO of Walmart, who more or less walks on water as a human and as a leader. Couldn't admire him more. I couldn't admire both of them more. And Doug said to me, you know, why do you want to do this? And I, I knew I would probably would never see him again. Like the probability of this all working out. And I'm like, the one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to do two things to this dinner. Number one is I'm not going to drink. And number two is I'm going to be honest. And I, and I said, Doug, because I need a job <laughs> you know, being a startup founder, yeah. not a job. And I was, you know, I was getting married. I had shareholders who didn't been in for a decade. I had angels who didn't been in for a decade. I had VCs who'd been in for seven years. And I think there's a moment where, you know, fantasy and reality do need to com- like collide. And it was a pragmatic decision that I think you know, thank God, like if the other deal we were going to do was a private equity deal, that would have been a minority deal where we would have like been going for the IPO. And we never could have predicted it. But, you know, with COVID and I think 60 retail locations and everything and being private equity owned and not inside of a big company that's doing well, like Walmart, you know, has has really thrived over the last 18 months, given the vital role that it plays in the American economy and the shift to digital. And I got to be a tiny part of that. It would have been really tough. And so I think one thing that I watch out for 
Chris, when I talk to new entrepreneurs that I think is a good watch out is I don't like when an entrepreneur says, well, what we're doing is this, but what we're really going to be doing is that. Yeah. Right. Right. Like I can remember myself being like, well, this isn't a pants company. This is a fill in the blank, right? This is a technology company that happens to sell pants now. Yeah. Or this is a, this is not NHL 94. This is electronic arts. We're going to be, we're going to build dozens of brands, which I literally at one point thought. And then every time we tried to do that, we launched two other brands. We woke up and discovered actually building one brand is hard enough. Right. And so whenever I meet an entrepreneur who says, our business isn't what we actually do. <laughs> it's something later we delusionally are going to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, get ner- I get nervous. You get nervous. People. Because what that really means is I'm not really that excited about what I'm doing now. Right. It's only a path to this what is I'm the building block. Later. Exactly. To, to go to where That's I really like want to go. saying like, I don't really want to have a baby. I want to have a five-year-old. Right. It's really kindergartners that I'm excited about. Why do you think entrepreneurs or and you could or you could throw investors into the same category struggle with focus. I mean, you could argue that, you know, the best and most successful companies on the planet only do one thing really well, right? Maybe Apple is a little bit different. There's a hardware and a software component. There's a couple co- companies that sort of have that level of sort of d- diversification. But like, if you look at a lot of the most successful companies, there's a high degree of focus. So wh- where does this sort of need or desire to ex- potentially expand further, greater, f- faster? Is it just economics? Is it shareholder interest? Is it returns? Is it making money? Like, is it a combination of all things? It's such a beautiful question, and there's there's two answers to it that I think are both important. My psychiatrist likes to say everything is overdetermined. Humans crave singular narratives to things, but there's generally multiple factors. And I, and I just want to focus. I think there's many in regards to your question, but there's two that I want to focus on. The first is just the nature of the entrepreneur herself, which is to say, by your very nature, if you start something, it's because you're driven to the distraction by the world and you want to put something new into it. Mm-hmm. And so your, your nature is when people say, no, don't do that, which might be your investors. Once you have a company in flight, your pattern recognition is, well, like people told me this wouldn't work. And so now that I have this new idea for what we're going to go do next, your pattern recognition is bet on yourself when you have a contrarian idea. And so there's this, this paradox of, what leads you to become a founder is an unhelpful skill set in some regards when you're trying to become a CEO, right? Because what a great founder does is invent something new. What a great CEO does is scale what they've built. Mm-hmm. That is the first invention until the company can infu- afford the second invention. Mm-hmm. And usually that's a few years away at a minimum, right? Makes sense. Yeah. But the, so that's problem one. Yeah. Problem two is entrepreneurs look at successful companies that currently exist and don't factor in that they didn't start that way, <laughs> that they started focusing on something hyper narrow. And I happen to just have be looking at that today for the new venture that I'm working on. And I shared with our team, you know, Airbnb looks like they, they got a lot going on at the beginning. It was overbooked designer conferences in San Francisco and a few people trying to rent out their apartment. Yeah. Facebook has a lot going on. It was face mash. 
It was yeah. Mark Zuckerberg as a Harvard sophomore, sophomore trying to rate the attractiveness of women on campus. You know, same story with, with Yelp and San Francisco doctors and nightlife. And so I think we tend to view companies as this deep ocean. And there's so much that they do that are the analogs that we currently admire. And we think as entrepreneurs that we can replicate taking on multiple things in the early days. When the truth is, is that most companies start as what Paul Graham describes as a well, which is a very narrow number of people who need something very badly. And I think mm-hmm. as entrepreneurs, we underestimate it's probably going to take you at least three years to prove that out before you get before you get to dream again. So you got to kind of lobotomize once you've got something going and just focus on it. And I'll be candid. I was horrendously bad at that. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be making something new. Do you have, right. Do you have any experience either from Bonobos or your venture, your own sort of venture practice, Red Swan or your sister's business, which obviously you're heavily involved in that I've always sort of felt that some of the best companies are born out of a high degree of sort of frustration, pain, you know, is often a personal experience where they, you know, whether it's it's mental health or it could be whatever, but there was a very personal component to their journey to want to build something to, you know, I'm going to try to not use the disruption word, but to, to innovate versus, you know, maybe approaching the, the idea of, of building from another lens. So if you understand what I'm asking, yep. I, yeah. And, and do you, do you agree, I, disagree? Have you seen any, you know? Oh, I mean, first of all, hugely agree. And I think you bring up Monica and Andy, my sister's company. And I think it's a really good example of my sister doesn't have that issue that I have around needing to do something new. And so, you know, she had my niece 10 years ago, which is when she had the insight around wanting chemical free organic clothing for her, for her baby, my niece. And we're 10 years from that. <laughs> and we're only now moving to really building our second business, which is a marketplace around what parents who care about organic products and sustainable products would want. And that really emerges from our observation that, you know, problem one was like, let's build a great organic clothing company. And then now let's solve problem two, which is that increasingly people are as busy as ever moms in particular who are doing more and more and more. And so let's create the suite of products. Like let's create the shortcut. And frankly, that was informed in part by, by me. I kept a spreadsheet as our son was due to arrive and I ended up making 38 different transactions <laughs> to get ready. Now, partly I was obsessive about it, Yeah, but that took me so much time. I mean, I, I became a consumer report subscriber yeah. to figure out yeah. this car seat. Right. I was the aisles at Bye Bye Baby, you know, learning about what's the right kind of bottle to get and why, which bottle do I buy and why. And so that's that's our next business that we're building is a marketplace around our our product of, of other products that we like. And we're doing that probably, I think, at a, the right time, which is, you know, seven years in of building the core business. Right. And so I think it's unique to find an entrepreneur like Monica where they have the patience to kind of build the next product, you know, not ahead of schedule. Right. Um, from a red swan perspective and in investing, has that always been somewhat of a bridge 
perhaps as you sort of think about what's next or build or something, you know, kind of comes to mind? Has it always just been something, hey, you're in this unique situation being who you are to support and, and, and invest in companies um, and investments from your personal standpoint? Yeah, it's a great question with a somewhat complicated answer, which is I've done a bunch of personal angel investments, which is pretty straightforward. A bunch more since I left Walmart. I've done, you know, maybe 20 or so in the last year and a half. The pandemic, you know, I didn't have much to do. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And so, you know, got excited to back people. And as we've talked about, a challenging part of the economic cycle can be a great time to start a company. Lots going on. And we've now deployed three micro funds at Red Swan. One was a million and a half. One was three million. Another one was 10 million. We're talking about what what the fourth a fourth fund might look like. And, you know, we had we had one huge win this year, which was Coinbase. It was mm. it was a little bit shocking on Red Swan too. I think we put about a hundred thousand dollars into the Series A and returned like 150 million of Coinbase stock. Yeah, so that's not bad. Like fifteen fifteen hundred times cash on cash. It was like sort of shocking. And I learned a couple of things from it. One is it actually bothered me in a weird way how how lucky, how much luck factors into into the world. I feel like with Bonobos, at least I earned it. Like I worked hard. It was 13 total years. You know, when you, when you look at like the total outcome, it's like, okay, we, we built that. With investing, there's this weird connection between having a brand where people want you to be in the mix, having a network, which is like, let's be honest, historically been like a bunch of white dudes yep. who built stuff, knowing other white dudes who built stuff. And then getting into something and really not doing anything and earning outsized returns. And so I, I don't know, I have some, some desire to figure out in this next incarnation of, of investing, how do we bring that kind of asymmetric wealth creation to populations that historically have not had access to it? And so I think of the 20 investments I've made over the last year and a half, the vast majority have been female founding CEOs and, and working hard on how, how to bring more people of color into the fold, both on the investment side as co-investors, as well as into the, the founders that we're looking at. It's almost like, I, I, it's almost, you know, uh, the only comp is angel list, but so, something along those lines where, whether it's people or, of color or any minority that just does not have access to the network that is, you know, fundamental to get to deal flow. Let's let's admit deal flow and access is is critical. But if 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 one could write a fifty dollar check to a hundred dollar check to a ten thousand dollar check and have a small piece of maybe a next Coinbase, but in a in a portfolio construction, obviously you never want to cherry pick one or two companies that that may not make a ton of sense. But you know, I hear you and. You know, I'm curious to get your reaction today. I mean, I, I, I do feel fine, especially when I look at my feed on LinkedIn or whatnot. The funds that have emerged in the last year that are, that are you know, minority, black, female, mix, it's, it's, it's incredible and incredible in a, in, in a great way. And what I'm curious about from your perspective, do you think we, do you think this was a, sort of driven as, as a result of everything that sort of happened in 2020 and, you know, Black Lives Matter and sort of this movement and maybe perhaps big institutional VCs saying, oh, I got to support this. Do we kind of hit a, 
a point or a peak where it's like, okay, we tick that box and then things level out? Or do you believe that we're from a kind of venture GP perspective and investing in all types of founders, not just white dudes, that that's going to sustain at some level? Yeah. I hope we're just getting started. And I, I would say it's a credit to a lot of people out there on the fund entrepreneur side that they've been at this for a while. Kirsten Green certainly by example with Forerunner. And then some new funds that have said, actually, what we'll do is we'll focus on backing. And we're talking on the female entrepreneurs, funds like what Anu Dugal is doing with Female Founders Fund and Susan, Lana and Nisha do are doing with uh, BBG. And what I do, Chris, is I become LPs in those funds, mm-hmm. right? So I could be an LP in other funds, presumably, and, and maybe there's more of a demonstrated track record of returns. But what I say with our capital, my wife and I have decided is, let's put our capital against funds that are focused on this, yep. because we know that it's hard for those funds to prove what they're doing out and raise capital. We've seen it firsthand. I think that's part of it. I would say 2020 with Black Lives Matter, that uncorked. I think some new energy, which was important in the ecosystem around black entrepreneurs and black investors. And I think something that's under discussed, which is, you know, looking at the, the Latino Latina side of the house. I haven't been saying Latinx recently because I heard that only 3% of Latino people approve of the concept. Oh, interesting. Um, that it's mostly, it's mostly just liberal white people. Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I had a really great experience, Chris. I want to share it briefly. I was uh, on Twitter during BLM, you know, retweeting like everyone was. And I had a black entrepreneur reach out to me and say like, Andy, why don't you stop tweeting and actually do something about it? He said it in a nicer way. And we had a DM exchange. His name is Kella Ivanye, Louisville, Kentucky based Nigerian immigrant has built two companies, sold one of them, you know, pays for his mom's lodging and, you know, great son. And we teamed up and we spent a year iterating on this concept called protege, which is basically finding a way to pair an up and coming pre-seed or seed stage black founder with what Mike Maples Jr. at um, Floodgate calls a super founder, which is someone who's had a realized exit of $50 million or above. And so how do we figure out how to take this energy in the ecosystem for backing black entrepreneurs? And how do we like pragmatically almost create like a bespoke marketplace where we can match someone who's building a company in a specific vertical up and coming black entrepreneur with someone that's done it before and realized an exit. And so, and by the way, it's been really hard to get that going. Like even with everything that's happening, like we're now trying to think about it as a micro fund and raising money so that Kella can manage, you know, a small pool of capital, three to $5 million. And it's not easy. And so I think, I hope the answer to your question is that we are just getting started because it feels to me like we're still a long way away from where we need to be. Good, good for you with that initiative. Andy, a couple more things, just one observation. I feel like from just how you talk about your wife and your wife's startup venture and, you know, supporting your sister, but everyone's going to support their sister and kind of this initiative where I feel, I feel like you were maybe ahead of the curve slightly as relates to doing the right thing as it pertains to women and women in venture and women entrepreneurs. And yes, it's kind of a mainstay thing. And of course, everyone's going to support it. And no one in their right mind is, doesn't, is going to think that that's a, a terrible idea. But I just, my instinct tells me you were just a l- few years 
vocal and also active around it. Is this mom? Is this like from family? Is this mom and dad? Is it, you know, what, where do you, do you think that's true? Do you realize that that may be something? Has someone ever said that to you? Do you like the fact that I asked you 70 questions rather than just one? (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's, it's again, overdetermined. It starts with my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. She was born as a child bride in, in Pakistan, which means she was promised to be married at 11. She was married at 12 or 13. She had two miscarriages before she was 15. She had two infants who died in infancy before she was 17. My goodness. Then she had seven kids, the middle of whom is my mom, who was born in a refugee town on the way from Rawalpindi, Pakistan, to New Delhi, India at the time of the partition. Two million people died at that time. My mom was born on that long march. And so having a grandmother who's a child bride, a mom who was, you know, a self-empowered manager of a team of 20 women in an ultrasound department, a sister who's an entrepreneur, a wife who's an entrepreneur, and a niece who feels like she can do anything she wants. Seeing that journey made me feel like, wow, how far we've come in just a few generations when it comes to women. And yet, like how absurd it is that we still live in a world where whatever it is, right, 9% of venture capital goes to female CEOs, I think. And yet the data has shown that female um, entrepreneurs on the balance have better risk-adjusted returns. So I think part of it is that grounding on my mom's side of the, the house. And, and my dad's side, to some extent, my my grandmother, paternal grandmother, was um, a surgical army trauma nurse on the beaches of Normandy on day eight, fell in love with my grandfather, who was a B-17 pilot. And they are to this day, we think the only couple who are both, you know, decorated war heroes buried at the Abraham Lincoln National Cemetery in Joliet. So I think there's a sense of like, you come from war heroes and refugees, and you got to get have your shit together for the future. And then I think what's happened to me more recently is two things. One, I got to sit on the board of the network executive women as Walmart's rep, one of their two representatives. And that changed my life because I just spent a ton of time at conferences around female executives in retail. And it just made me angry at sort of the, the like quiet endurance and fortitude and resilience that is required to be a female executive in America. And the, it just I, like the day-to-day lived reality for women in our country, as it transmitted to me, led to outrage once I was forced to sit with it. And it was a privilege to go spend like three days at a women's conference. Tell me a man you know who spent three days at a women's conference. It's just mm-hmm. like we don't spend our time that way. We're just not curious enough, right? People with the privilege, we're just not curious enough. And I hope, I think we're getting more curious, but there's a lot of work to do in that regard. And I would say the most important factor recently has just been my wife who just like gives no Fs about my point of view when it's wrong. Like, and for me, the example is like, she did a we were early days dating and she did a math calculation in her head. And I was like, you're really good at math. And she was like, <laughs> what? And it was sort of this moment. And <laughs> I ended up, I ended up writing a piece called swimming in privilege, which is like the, the fish from David Foster Wallace's Kenyan college speech, which is like, if you're swimming in privilege, you don't know it just the way like the fish don't know they're swimming in water. They'd be like, what's water. Right. And so I had that moment and got tapped to do this board at Walmart. And I think that helped me build on, you know, this, this DNA, familial DNA and feeling like, okay, I just got to do more. Now that I'm aware of this, I just got to do more. 
I mean, I really hope that our listeners and yeah, people that hear this story, Andy, can find a, just a little bit of time to open up their their own curiosity, you know, beyond their day to day. It is hard, I'm sure you can imagine, but just listen to some of these examples and how many more doors open as a result of not sort of being sort of just happy in your own your own swim lane is critically important. There's so much more to dive into. We will do that together soon. I can I assume that whipped cream is your are you just sort of are you just fucking with people or is that just sort of the the catalyst to the to the book? Can you talk about whipped cream? Yeah, whipped cream, it's not the name of the of the product that we're building, it's the name of the so it's it's not the name of what what's coming out, but yeah, we'll be we'll be live in just a few weeks in the app store with a product that I hope is addressing an opportunity that is hidden in plain sight. Our our mission is to eliminate loneliness, but it's not it's not a mental wellness product. It's something different and excited to share more. Um, no, that's good. So that will be in the app store. I'm sure we'll hear some headlines. The book comes out when? Books take a long time. Comes out next month. <laughs> So, so like, move, like when people say they're moving or unpacking and they're like, yeah, it's going to take 30 days and then you add 60 or 90, I imagine getting a book uh, release is even hard, takes a little bit longer, but we'll look out for that. Andy, super, um, really just proud of you as a, as a friend, as a human, just everything that you, you've done and you've built and how you've really leveraged your experiences just to, to, to now this flywheel of sort of you know, goodness and self-awareness and, and thank you for sharing and, and, and being so honest in regards to your, your mental health uh, journey, because I think that's extremely important to, for us to talk about more. So thank you for that. And from a superpower perspective, you're unique because there's a, there's a bunch, there's like emotional and social awareness. Uh, there's a high degree of honesty that's kind of come from this conversation. Anything else that you want to add from the context of superpowers before we wrap up? I think I can I can eat more tortilla chips in one <laughs> sitting than most, than most people. Um, I think that's like the top. Fine. Like I'll go chip. I'll go chip to chip with you any day of the week. Fine. Fine. We'll do that. Andy, great to see you, man. Good luck and Thank keep but uh, keep moving forward. And we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you in Chicago soon, buddy. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode, everyone. New episodes of the Superpowers podcast are released twice a month. So please subscribe and follow us on our website to get notified on future shows. Superpowers, what's yours? This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.